This show is sponsored by IdealWorkspace.com, which promotes a healthier way of working through their adjustable standing desk. Check out their latest smart adjustable standing desk at Altizen.com. A-L-T-I-Z-E-N.com. Welcome to Analyze Asia, the podcast dedicated to dissect the pulse of business, technology, and media in Asia. In this episode to close the year, I speak to Arnold Bonzen from 500 Startups in a two-part conversation to review the major events that have shifted the landscape of Southeast Asia in 2017. Hi Arnold. Good morning Bernard. How are you doing? Very good, and you? Yeah, we're in Inside Business School, Singapore, right? Yes, correct. This is the end of the year. So what has it been like for you? It has been an amazing year. I feel if I benchmark 2017 against 2016, I think I've produced more things in 2016. But what is interesting about 2017 is I've worked on several personal projects also that I will release next year. So I'm quite excited about next year too. Yes, I'm pretty sure you'll be coming on my show to talk about all those projects. So I am talking to Arnold Bonzer venture partner at 500 Startups and co-founder of Map of the Money. So if you ever want to know who are the VCs, private equity funds, and even angel investors in the whole region, you probably would have gone through the Map of the Money. And it's a project that started with someone by the name of Florin Komu and originated from the founder of JFDI, Ming Ming Wong, right? Correct. So, so far, we only have one angel investor on the list of your news, but we're bringing more of them as well as accelerators and, and several other like vehicles of investment because we want to provide to entrepreneurs as much as possible different source of funding, helping them to identify as fast as possible who could be the right match for them because a founder should spend time to build this product and to his customers and not about fundraising. So since our last conversation, what have you been up to? So since our last conversation, I spent a lot of time helping corporates engaging with startups so helping them to understand what are the best tools they can have meaning like is it an accelerator is it a corporate venture arm that they should set up so this was like my main focus since our last discussion but then I also move on a new position with 500 where now I spend most of my time with our portfolio companies helping them to engage with corporate so basically after helping corporate no I went to the other side helping startup helping them to sell or partner or raise or get acquired by corporates you're here for a very hard task because I've just done a review of Northeast Asia with Shy Oster from the information. So, of course, we were definitely needed to do the Southeast Asia review too, because there's an entire region of its own. And when we talk about the Southeast Asia region, we are talking about the ASEAN countries, which is made up of 10 countries. And most likely, some of these would trickle down from China, and mm-hmm. it also goes into India. To think about this whole landscape, prior to this, we have wrote down five major events. In fact, mm-hmm. one of the events we have to split into two parts, because it involves the startups and the VCs. I think the very first event that's really shake. Southeast Asia this year is SoftBank and DD's major investment in Grab with US $2 billion. And I'm really hearing from various startups that Grab simply sucks up the oxygen in the startup ecosystem when it comes from talent war. So for every dollar they want to pay for someone to join them, Grab will just go in with an offer of 1.5x. So this is from one of the Series B entrepreneurs who I shall not name in this podcast. I think the, the biggest question that we all have is that Grab aspires to be the Uber of Southeast Asia. And in Indonesia, there's a company that's also up and coming, which is called Gojek. And apparently the founders of Grab and Gojek were both former alumni of the same class in Harvard, in Harvard Business Correct. School. 
Will Gojek still able to take on Grab in Indonesia given it is the largest market in the whole Southeast Asia and Gojek actually has Tencent's investment then? I mean, this battle is like all the ride-ailing battle and I will also add on top of the cars all the bikes. So then it's becoming a very large battle between all those players. So far, the only global player is Uber that we can find across several market, but also Uber have decided to stop the war in China as well as Russia. And Uber have the plan to do IPO next year. And as we saw recently, they also did a partnership with Confordelgro. They decided to sell their rental business in US. So it looks like Uber just don't want to spend too much cash anymore. So then the question, I think also between Gojek and Grab is, is it Uber staying in Southeast Asia? If they're staying, are they doing a partnership with one of those two players? So this can really change the face of the game here in the region. I think then when we just look at, at that, I think we also need to look a lot at Didi because Didi also have stake into Grab and Didi have 12 billion in cash in the bank account now. Technically, if we look at the last valuation of Grab, where it was just close to 2 billion, is 6 billion, right? So technically, Didi can just pay it cash. And Didi is looking to expand outside of China now. So depending on what Didi also want to do with some of those players, we don't really know. So what will be the face of that industry in the next year? What I also suspect is that recently Didi did a very big investment round, almost in the form of an acquisition of Brazil's yep. largest ride-hailing app. What was the name of that? 99. 99. 99. Yeah. And I think the, the question is that Didi has actually a very strong relationship with Grab. Both Jin Liu and Anthony shared stage on record on stage right there is always this educated guess from me that eventually dd will buy grab well, the thing is, initially, it was this massive alliance between Grab, Ofo, Leaf, and Didi, so to compete against Uber. But then when Uber left China, then Uber got some stake in Didi. So the challenge is like, it's almost everyone having stake into each other. And I feel it's a bit like Dallas in a way. You don't know like what would be the next step, who decide to be on which side of the thing. And then what is also interesting about Didi is initially it was two companies, one backed by Tencent, one backed by Alibaba, and they merged. Right. And then now if you look at South Asia, you got Grab, which is backed by Alibaba and SoftBank. And the other side, you got Gojek backed by Tencent. So it could be a fight, but it could be also a merge on the paper if you look at what happened in China. So that part is very difficult to, to get a sense. Then I think we talk a lot about Alibaba, SoftBank, etc. But basically, I look at all those backer of companies in the right links like Bag, and it's close to 15 of them who have invested at least in two of those companies. And one of the interesting is Kuatsu Management, who also invest in several of them, more than SoftBank. Right. And we don't talk in the street too much about them. Then when you think about the split in Southeast Asia, I think there's a few things interesting is it looks like Gojek is looking to expand to Philippines. There's some rumor that they may go to Philippines. But I think also Grab now have almost as much, if not more, cities cover in, in uh, Indonesia than Gojek. So it's becoming quite interesting. And also Indonesia is slightly less than half of the population of the Southeast Asia. So the question is, it if you own Indonesia... Are you in a very strong position compared to the person who owned the rest of Southeast Asia? And what, what would be the best to own? I think it's not really easy because then it depends about cities, it depends about the addressable market and etc. I think it depends also of the deep pocket of your backer who really want to, to win this battle. So I think it's, it's very difficult because you get a lot of different inputs to consider. And then it's, you get so many of them that it's very difficult to make a guess about who will win the battle or maybe they will merge or, or someone come and buy or someone will exit and give a lot of market share to one of those two players. Yeah. I was recently on John Atman and Matthew Brennan's China Tech Talk and I actually talked about the whole BAT by Duali Baba Tencent's mm -hmm. footprint in Southeast Asia. It actually dates back since 2011-2012 period. And what was becoming very interesting in terms of what 
is happening in China, it's not happening in Southeast Asia, the kind of alliances. And I always told people, if you want to think about what these guys want to do, just follow the money because they ally with mm -hmm. Tamasic Holdings and also SoftBank in terms of what kind of investments they're doing within the region. I think you have already alluded to this point earlier. Does Uber still have a chance in Southeast Asia? Well, I think is the challenge is looking at also all the other market and Already they want to be for IPO and how much they're willing to keep or not keep Southeast Asia. I think it's quite difficult to make a guess about if they will stay or not. But the thing is, by having Grab and Gojek fighting with them, they have like a very tough competition. They also are live doing pretty well in the US. You get uh, Mavaki, who was before with Facebook, who joined them and really helped them on their growth. So I think they also have like a very tough competition in, a, in their own markets. Basically, they can make war with everyone around them. So sometimes they may need to settle some of them, like what they did in Russia and China. So, and I don't think so they will settle in the US. So you have four ride-sharing companies all over the world, and they are all owned by the same investor. Wouldn't they consolidate? I mean, this question I've already asked Shai, and he says that, yeah, you know, founders have egos. They don't want to merge. But you know, Uber is no longer run by a founder, CEO. Travis is out. So, you know, Didi could just make a play to buy Uber out. And that would be really funny, right? And Shai Oster make this bold prediction that, you know, Jinyu might become the CEO of Uber. So, do you think that that might happen? I think now in terms of valuation, Didi is slightly above Uber on the, based on the last round of, of each of them because SoftBank bought some share with a discount of Uber. I think it would be very difficult to acquire each other because they have more or less the same valuation. So even if they do share swipe plus cash, I think I think would be technically I think quite difficult to be able to to make that happen between those two giants. Except if you get one or two large barker on both sides who agree to do something, and then maybe it can help to move the thing. But I, I don't really see that that happening. But it's, it was interesting because it was I don't remember the name of this company who was like you know like two wheels and you 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 go on top to to move like this kind of transportation tool. And the Segway, yeah. The Segway was built in the US and at the end it ended by being bought by the Chinese version who copied them. So it could it could be interesting to see like invented in the US but bought by the Chinese and grow by the Chinese. But the buying is going to get difficult because of US government regulations coming in. So we're getting to event two, which I think is interesting. is Southeast Asia companies going IPO mm -hmm. with C, aka former Garena, backed by Tencent. And Razer, a hardware company that specializes in the mouse, they also most well-known for Alienware, in case you don't know that, yep. for Alienware laptops, which all gamers use. And recently, they have also got their Razer phone, and they have been backed by Lee Ka-shing's Horizon Ventures. And this is probably very interesting. So one thing that has came out a couple of years ago, there was a company called MOL, which is actually the largest yep. gaming payments company from Malaysia went public in the US, but the problem it didn't do well, it got delisted. And part of the reason is that the investors in the US do not understand Southeast Asia as a market. I think there are two questions to that. C is currently listed in New York Stock Exchange and Razer is listed in Hong Kong Stock Exchange. They have very, very different routes. Given the lack of knowledge from US investors, will C able to break out in the next stage of the growth for their company? I mean, we saw Nick Nash in the recent TechCrunch meetup together. What are your thoughts on that? So what is interesting about the US, I don't know that much on the investors who buy stock on, on the NASDAQ, but like four or five years back, when I went to the US and I was speaking to Southeast Asia, investor was like, we don't care about Southeast Asia. It's kind of US only and maybe a Europe or, or that kind of thing. 
Whereas I feel for the last one or two years, when, when you visit San Francisco, people are like, oh, you are from South Asia, come. I want to talk to you. I want to know more about what is happening there. I know also some VC in Europe where they say that startups are going to Asia and they don't go into US. So I think it's like more and more interest about Southeast Asia and, and if not about Asia. And the thing is because those markets are not growing that much and they see that the potential of, of those regions. I don't know for the stocks, but I feel like US and Europe are paying way more attention to Asia than they had in the past. And they also stop to think about Asian company are just copying the, the European or, or US one and just copycat. They start to understand some of those companies are doing very well. They start to see Tencent, one of the top five market valuation. So they're like, wow, what is this company is Tencent? I think they still don't know very well who is Tencent, but they start to see the name as a top five company. So then they start to get a better sense. And then when you look at that, it's like, okay, where Tencent have put some money? Tencent is a gaming company, mostly in terms of revenue still. Then like, oh, Garena. And Garena receiving this money from Tencent that they're distributing League of Legends in Southeast Asia. So if Tencent is used in China, it's kind of a proxy to a missed Tencent opportunity to invest in that company. If I look at a proxy to invest in the next Tencent, for Asia, is in the way it's Garena, it's like, okay, why not to buy some of those stocks? Which is Garena now in the form of the company called Seed. Then when it comes to Razor, entering China is because they want to enter the Chinese market. And that's why they decided to list in the Hong Kong Stock Exchange. I guess, where do you see their trajectory be? I mean, Tencent, by the way, is listed on the Hong Kong Stock Exchange. So that's not true that, you know, anything that lives on Hong Kong Stock Exchange is just as inferior to what is on New York Stock Exchange or NASDAQ. Yeah, agree. And I think it will change this year. For, but for the last two years, Hong Kong Stock Exchange, I received more listings uh, in terms of value than the New York Stock Exchange or NASDAQ. And they, they were above. And I was very surprised. And I learned that when I knew that they, they were close to lose this title for this year. But the problem with Hong Kong Stock Exchange, as I always say, is that they don't allow dual listing of shares, yeah. which is the biggest problem. And two classes of shares, which NYAC have, which give founders a lot of power yeah. over control of their company. So it looks like they're working on changing that to avoid to lose more listing. But we hear that all the we'll time see. from Singapore Stock Exchange and Hong Kong Stock Exchange, but until today, nothing is done. Well, we'll see. I think maybe by losing the title this year, usually you decide to change when you get some constraint about doing it. When you think those goes well, usually you don't want to change that much. So Razer, what I feel is very interesting is is an hardware company, which have been not very easy to run like hardware company for stock reason, a working capital, supply chain. But personally, I think the founder of Razer is maybe one of my favorite founder when, when you listen to him talking at, 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 at event. And I think he got a clear strategy about what he want to do. And what also is very interesting is they really have a massive fan base. He mentioned that you have some of the customers who have a tattoo of Razer on their body. People are really like massive fan of their product so this this is quite interesting and i think also what's interesting on the razor is they're building also an whole ecosystem between payments between a laptop phone and etc like a little bit like what xiaomi is doing interesting they actually have analogs to each other almost razors like xiaomi with a very loyal fan base yeah. with people who are very excited about their products and they are now trying to play ecosystem yeah so jeremy also like a very interesting part is they also ask very often to the customer what they should improve mm. and on a weekly basis they launch what are the top suggestions from the user so they really bring that community close to them and try to really listen to them and make them part of the building the next product yeah, I mean, Razer is founded by Tan Ming Liang, Singaporean, yep. and I think a lot of people don't know the hidden history of this company. One of the things is actually funded by a very well-known super angel by the name of Ko Bun Hui. He's part of what is called the HP Alumni of Singapore, but that entire HP Alumni are now basically most of the venture capitalists, mm -hmm. angel investors, and even entrepreneurs in today's island. For example, Eddie Chow from Vicky, 
uh, Yan Yan, who's the head of Oracle for Asia Pacific. You know, they are really people in the enterprise space who are funding these companies. And what I thought was interesting that the advice was given to Mingliang by Ko Bun Hui was when you create the Razor, incorporate yourself in the US market. And that was the trajectory that was very important for Razor because Razor has actually been perceived as a US company, not as a Southeast Asian mm-hmm. company. So actually, even if they had listed in the US, the people would have known them Alienware. Everybody knows Razor to Alienware. Mm-hmm. Everybody knows Razor to their mouse. I think this is something that we will see ongoing and we probably want to look at what Mingyang has to say about the market. And he's very vocal on Twitter. Yeah, it's, it's, it's very vocal <laughs> on, on many ways. For me, Razor always have been a US company and not like a Singaporean company. So it's why when Paul lists Razor as a Southeast Asian unicorn, I will, I will disagree. Yeah. For me, it's a, it's a US company. That's right. But also another very interesting fact about the gaming industry is that is bigger than than the Hollywood industry, and a lot of people think like the gaming industry is small. It's not that many people playing. It's only people below twenty. There is no woman playing there. And when you look at some data from uh, people like running Twitch that have been acquired for almost a billion by Amazon, so if Amazon is willing to put a billion to buy a gaming streaming platform, there is some reason behind. It's it's not because the industry is small and those people don't use it that much. I think so far is one of the best way platform like Twitch to engage millennials and way cheaper on that platform yet because people are not spending too much money on, on those platforms. I think the gaming industry is very interesting. We also have some great story in Singapore. Nonstop Games got acquired by King.com. They several employee of King.com then. I mean, Nonstop Games with John King.com. They some of them now who have started their own uh, gaming company. And some of the names that you mentioned before as Angel also invested in those companies. That's right. So it's like a lot of interesting things coming also on, uh, on, on the gaming industry also in, uh, in Southeast Asia. So I think for the third event, we have to break up into two parts. And I think it's very fair because there is the startup side of the story and then there is the VC side of the story. So the event 3A, which I call it, is that the Series B funding across startups uh-huh. in Southeast Asia for companies like Carousel, CXA Group, Smart Camera, and Shopify, they have all received it. I guess just now I've already pointed out that anytime they try to hire talent out there, Grab is just going to walk in and say, I'm going to pay 1.5x the price for that particular talent. So, will the war on talent in Southeast Asia start to shift? Meaning you're getting more of these corporate guys coming in. I mean, you hear that during the TechCrunch event, right? These guys were basically shoving off. I'm hiring, please come and join me. I mean, everyone on that stage was talking about it. What are your perspectives? Well, I, th- I think I will don't necessarily like split by series B. I will say like wh- what is happening basically is I didn't have finished, but it's something I'm working for my third deck for Singapore ecosystem is in South Asia, I already get like 15 startups at least who have raised more than 100 million in total. So those 15 have raised a lot of capital and it goes from 100 to almost 3.5 billion for, for Grab. So the thing is, you get those 15 companies with a lot of access to capital, definitely. An interesting fact when you look at those guys is 93% of them are based in Singapore or Indonesia. So also give you an idea about what happened in the rest of Southeast Asia as most of the capital so far have been captured by only those two countries with basically two cities, Jakarta and, and, and Singapore. Yeah, but I guess Singapore's problem is always that the market is small, right? But the only yeah. two things that's actually that works for them is the rule of law. Mm-hmm. and IP rights. For the rest of Southeast Asia, these are non-existent. Yeah, I think it's, it's fair. Like Singapore should play the role of being the HQ of those companies for the region, attract the top talents. Because if you if you go in the US or if you go in Europe and you try to attract people and you ask them, do you want to live in Bangkok or Jakarta? And they start to know about the traffic, about education for the kid, about hospitality, about, sorry, hospital, not hospitality. If you look then also about infrastructure, a lot of people... If they don't know the region, they may anyway pick up Singapore. So Singapore can have this money to attract talents. 
And what would happen is like Singapore have most of the have 90 plus of the 100 biggest corporate worldwide are based in Singapore yeah. on the public. So the talent are already there. When then you look at Unicorn, there's above 50 unicorns from outside of South Asia with people in Singapore. So those people are already there, right? So when you look at large corporate, at unicorns and at top school like INSEAD and before like Chico Booth, they attract talent already in Singapore. So those people were already in Singapore, right? And then you get those companies who have the ability of those large startups to pay and attract those talents. So for example, I think a very good example, since you mentioned Carousel, is someone like Jadjet at Carousel. Yep. So basically what happened, he worked at McKinsey, he did INSEAD, after INSEAD he went to an unicorn, he went to Airbnb. And after helping Airbnb to grow to Southeast Asia, he joined Carousel. But this is the beauty of Singapore. It's like he come from INSEAD, then he decided to take a little bit more risk and go for an unicorn, he went to Airbnb, and then he wanted to take way more risk and go for an earlier stage company and he, and he went to Carousel. So I think this this is the advantage of Singapore. It's like if you already set up there for those companies, you may stay there compared to... And as soon as those companies also rest Series B, they will be across several countries in the region. So anyway, being based anywhere, it doesn't make a huge difference, especially if you don't necessarily speak Indonesian. You would just oversee the, the region. And, and the war of talent is just everywhere. If you go to... I was like last week in Nepal, people always complain about talent, but I never found an ecosystem where someone tell you, hey, I have too much great engineer knocking on my door. Do, do you have job for them? I don't know anyone saying this too much people. You know, I actually agree with you with this. This is one of those counterintuitive things that I tell people, just shut up about this whole talent problem. If you really don't have it, go and create it. I mean, hmm? some people don't understand. Today, Singapore had one of the highest GDPs in the world. And literally, it was a fishing village 30, 40 years ago, 50 years ago, to be, to be exact. And what happened was we trained our people. Today, our education system is the best in the world. Like the US, France, they're all using Singapore mm-hmm. math as a teaching system for their kids. So don't stop having this whiny behavior about oh there's not enough talent there is enough talent it's just whether you want to willing to invest in talent and i think that and you get also some great initiative like for example you got general assembly who's also doing some training of course it's not like a three years or five years degree but also Singaporean can get also some um, some kind of grant to be able to go to those training and, and learn new skills i think i saw someone at gojek to after doing a data science class at at jerson at and john gojek for example so there's different ways that you can bring those kind of talent in a region and you can train them. To go back about company who have raised those Series B round, if you just look also only in 2017, company who have raised round above 25 million is close to 20 of them. And this is about is between A, B, C, because you get companies who have raised Series A at 50 million, like Singapore Life, for example. So basically... When you look, you already get those 15 companies who have raised more than 100 million. And then you get 20 with a massive overlap between the two who have raised 25 million and above only this year. So it starts to be a lot of money around. But I think it's good also because this means you have also the budget and start to have the brand for some of those startups to attract top talent from all over the world. And it's not that easy because I suspect one of the reasons why Amazon took so much time to launch Amazon, the e-commerce part here in, in Singapore, is maybe because they got trouble to attract the top talents in a region to be able to manage that kind of expectation they may have in terms of time of delivery and logistics, etc. for Singapore. And which is basically the easiest market in Southeast Asia, yeah. I suspect, in terms of logistics. <laughs> I'm in the midst of transitioning to my next role, so I can talk a lot about the logistics and e-commerce space and why Amazon's having that much problems, but that's not for another day. I just want to ask the next question. 
how are these companies going to prove their valuations for their next stage of funding in Series C? I think the the challenge that they may encounter at, at Series C or even if B, depending on where they've been before, is that in Southeast Asia for now, you get a pretty good, across most of the countries, but not all of them, you get a pretty good seed stage in terms of number of investors and quality. I will say the same for Series A. But as soon as you go to Series B, if you ask most of the people, they will maybe be able to mention only one name, which is B Capital. I mean, pretty good branding since it's B Capital, right? But you wouldn't get that many other names mentioned. So the change is like from who you will raise first. And it's not that many investors who will do Series B on Ward in Southeast Asia. Mm-hmm. So then you may need to go to, hopefully, if you get lucky, maybe you already get Sequoias and investors and they're willing to take the all new rounds or a large part of it with your current investors. So you do just an internal round. Or maybe you need to look at corporate like Alibaba, Tencent, GG.com on the Chinese side, or maybe getting someone like SoftBank on the Japanese side or some corporates from the US. Some US corporate also LPs in some of the fund here in, uh, in, in Southeast Asia. Mm-hmm. You also got NASPERS who are doing several investment in Southeast Asia. People don't talk too much about them. I think people talk a lot about Beidou, who, who so far didn't have done that much in Southeast Asia, right. where NASPERS have done, I suspect, more, and nobody talk about them. And so, they're coming from South Africa. Let, let's just add something. NASPERS have been one of the biggest investors in Southeast Asia, and also they owned a very significant chunk of Tencent. Yes. And there's no one. Exactly. Basically, their stake in Tencent basically, I think, forms at least a quarter or one fifth of their balance sheet. If oh, I'm not wrong. I think the value is more than that. Yes, uh, that's right. So, so basically, it's a bit the story. Like at one point, like the value of Yahoo was slightly below that their stake in Tencent. Uh, uh, sorry, in Alibaba, Nasper and Tencent is a bit the same story. Same, um, same story. But as well, let's know. Bank as well. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That's right. Coming to this, which is actually the B part of that conversation on the event tree is that all the VCs in Southeast Asia have actually successfully raised their second funds, NSI, Golden Gate, Jungle Ventures, etc. But the year before that, Vertex Ventures, which is actually a subsidiary of Tomasic Holding, actually already raised a very, very big fund. I think it's almost to the range of US 500 million and they have to deploy all this capital in the next three to five years. I think this is a good sign because in the first generation of these VC funds, they usually set up the fund and then they collapse mm-hmm. before they even reach their second fund. And now you're seeing a real proper maturity of the venture capital ecosystem where you're seeing the second round funds. And then I think a lot of VCs always say it's actually a third fund that's hardest to raise. Yes. Because that's, that's the key challenge on that. Moving forward, are the C and Series A deals getting smaller given that we haven't really seen a grab in the last two years? Well, okay, just I think you mentioned, of course, like Golden Gate, Jungle, Wavemaker, NSI. Those people are successful raise. Uh, I mean, NSI is raising now. It's a large first close, but it's not closed yet, the second fund. All the other ones have closed the second fund, and we can also add Gree Ventures on that. So like some Japanese, but also open to other investors, not only like Gree, the, the gaming company. The thing is, several of them have done a massive jump. When you look at especially Golden Gate, Jungle and Wavemaker, the first fund was across 10 million range. The second one is more between 60 to 100 million. And I think this was a pretty successful part of the TS scheme that had been launched by NRF. So those, those three VC have been part of that scheme. And then they managed to raise a second bigger fund. 
but they don't really leverage a lot on the TIS scheme. In fact, one of the they, they successes is that they don't leverage on their scheme that much. They, they leverage, I mean, some of them are leveraged pretty well and they get a massive, I mean, the if you look at the numbers of the fund, um, they have pretty good return because of those other schemes. And I agree with you. I think the first fund you talk a lot is a lot about the storytelling and, and some investment you have done maybe as an angel. So second one is a bit of storytelling and early traction. Uh, the third one is a lot about what is the results by the number of your first funds. And then if it works well, it can make your life very easy to raise the third fund. If it doesn't work that well because maybe your huge winner will come later, then it could be very difficult for you to raise your third fund. Yeah. And then comes to the next question, right? Recently, there are ICOs too. Yeah. So we but, are seeing a lot of ICOs this year. But what do you want to say? I will say like first, just to finish on the, on the VC side is I think the seed stage is maybe a good ratio of investors now. I feel on Series A, it starts to be more and more competition, especially when you get some large player who are willing to take the all round. So it squeeze a little bit the, the other players. And what we start to see a little bit more is also a lot of those VC where before money, on, money only was enough. Now they need to offer more support. So a lot of VC offering support to their portfolio companies. And a lot of them are working on their branding by doing top leadership, by being more active on, on social media, but also by, by releasing some reports. So we start to see a little bit more competition which I think is good also for the entrepreneurs because entrepreneurs may get like better terms and to raise the next round. Only C Plus is doing that because my good friends Smithy and Tiang, they are all operators. Yeah. I mean, this is what Jungle did, right? They did their bigger fund and then they created a small fund well, to, to fund the early is, is companies, right? C Plus have a, have a pretty good branding on that part, but you get several other investors like... So for example, if you look at Golden Gate Ventures, they have also Kenrick who is doing like uh, helping portfolio companies on their growth, right? So he has been to several of, of the of the company. They also have someone for market development at Golden Gate. If you look at Sequoia Capital, they just hire like several people to do portfolio support. So even if Sequoia was already a large brand, Last check size are willing to offer support to the to their portfolio company, right? And at five hundred, we're also working on some of those support for our portfolio companies sure, too. Sure, sure. So is is yeah. is I think it's it just shows like more competition between the between the investors, and I think the person who benefit that is the entrepreneur. So I think it's a great thing for the ecosystem in Southeast Asia. Okay, we we still haven't settled the ICO problem. So yeah. the ICO successes is now a new form of fundraising with Southeast Asia. Yes. Okay? It's not just happening in China, it's not just happening in the US, but it's happening actually a lot more in Southeast Asia. I think the most significant ones, are, there are two companies I saw recently, and one of them is, both of them are payments. Or may say they did 25 mil US. Yep. I think they invested by Golden Gate Ventures too. I have to make sure that and, that's added too. And 500 startups too. 500 startups too. <laughs> and then there's another company that's actually incubated by PayPal called 10X. 10X, correct. They have raised somewhere close to 100 million. Yes. Very interesting question then. How are you guys going to cope with these ICOs? Well, that, I mean, the VCs are not really giving a lot of money in the seed stage and Series mm-hmm. A. I've been seeing this slump going on in the last two years. I've seen not much seed stage or Series A companies actually coming up. And I think part of it is because everybody shifted up. Well, I think I think basically what is happening is is just a fragmentation on the on the way you can sustain your your startups in time of funding. So first, I would like to say that the best way as an entrepreneur is get the money from your customer. I think this is if you can do that, just do it, right? 
Then depending on your business model and on your industry, if you need like more like working capital and you need to raise some money, then it's a wide range of things, right? So before we talk about FFF, family, friends and fools. And, and so basically it's like the angel stage, right? And then you can go to the VC and at, at different stages, right? But you can also go to accelerators. You can also get some grants in some countries. You can also get corporate investors, investment bank, private equity. At one point, you can go to IPO. You can go to loan debt. You can go to crowdfunding, right? Quite crowd equity also nowadays, like a platform like Kickstarter or Indiegogo are offering like those kind of solutions or, or working on it. So the thing is, the challenge I feel is almost now, if you're at a C-stage startup, you maybe almost need to get a CFO to get a sense, what should I do? So if you look at Omise, it's very interesting because I've raised venture capital first, then they did ICO, and then they raised again venture capital. And I think they don't really try necessarily to get the biggest ICO amount of money, right? Because also if you raise like 100 million ICO and then you do the VC round at 10 million, it maybe don't look very good for your company, right? So I think it brings like way more complexity due to the fragmentation, but in a way also offer more choices to the entrepreneur. So I will say at the end is like, of course, you may need the money, but what else do you need? If you just need the money, maybe you go for crowd equity, you go for ICO, you go for that part because you get the money, right? But if you need advice, if you need someone who can help you for the, the challenge for recruitment top talent, if you need someone who can help you to sell to corporates by opening doors, if you need someone who can help you to talk to government, because as a small startup, maybe government don't give you the meeting, but if the VC asks, maybe you get the meeting, right? So it's really depending on what else do you need. And depending on that, then you navigate and you look at what are the pros and cons of all those sources of money? Usually they don't come just the money. Or ICO is almost just the money in a way. But if you need advice and other things, they will don't help you on that part. So I think in a way it's like if you are, let's say, a dumb VC who just offer money, then ICO may kill you. But if you're a great VC bringing a brand for the entrepreneur, helping them and offering them support, I think then the top VC will survive. So I think ICO may remove the, the less good VC from the map. The best part of having Arnold on is actually to actually get a lot of data and numbers. And I think I wouldn't be doing him a lot of justice if I actually put all this into one episode. So what I'm going to do is that we still have two more events and some predictions. We're going to pull it to the next episode and we're going to come back and we're going to have that conversation again. Sure. It was a pleasure, Bernard.